Okay, the next question is from a reader of my website and uh, he asked me to ask Tom this question. Um, I'm suffering from a compulsive, a possessive compulsive disorder uh, since it is told in my big toe and other sources that uh, we choose certain aspects of our life and are being given them by the larger consciousness system to promote our personal growth, I tend to see this in an ambivalent way. In the past, I used to fill my life with things to uh, rather entertain myself and often gave way too much value to material things. When the disorder reached a certain level, that didn't work uh, that didn't work anymore, and I was forced to deal with more profound challenges in order to manage my life. Uh, thus came my interest in how reality works, the relationship between us and the reality we are in, and the purpose of it. Um, so I think it has clearly a beneficial side, but mainly um, ordinary things, but many ordinary things people do are in conflict with my disorder and I often find myself upset and reacting sternly to others when they do so certain things. Also, I tend to dissociate. Also, I tend to dissociate from people to prevent those conflicts. It seems to me rather obstructive in order to lower entropy, like Mr. Campbell says. So, my question is: In the context of my big toe, can it be that my disorder is something chosen by myself or given to me in order to help me evolve? And how to approach the negative effects, which seem rather destructive? Okay, um, there are three possibilities of how you ended up with uh, uh, OCD, okay, obsessive compulsive disorder. One, it could be, uh, as you, as you uh, imply in your question, that you just took it on. That means you purposely took on this obsessive compulsive uh, behavior as a catalyst to growth. You, you come here, you incarnate here with that as a given um, because it gives you challenges to overcome, challenges that you particularly need to overcome. The negative effects of it are part of your challenge. Okay, the second possibility is it's that your OCD is just a random happening. Your OCD was, was a random biochemical event which you have to deal with. Okay, that means the physical system, of course, sets limitations, sets constraints on what we as consciousness can do with our avatar. So part of that uh, randomness in the way the, uh, all the chromosomes and everything uh, just happen to come together between that particular sperm and that particular egg and what comes out of it, and then the environmental uh, conditions that, that then massage that and move it around further. Uh, all of that is a, it's just, it just happens, you know, it falls in the category of stuff happens. And that may have created a biochemistry that now is just you have to deal with. Just like you may have been born with one leg or no arms or something like that, you know, uh, no hair. And you would just have to deal with it, what, uh, whatever it is. So it could be just a random happening. And third, it could be that that's just the way you express the way you are. In other words, your initial consciousness quality is simply expressing itself through OCD. Okay? Consciousness modifies the physical system. So you come in 
with a consciousness that uh, has a certain level of fear in it, and that fear is now expressing itself as OCD, and the body then adjusts to give you the biochemistry that actually uh, uh, supports that that condition. So, you know, that's the uh, that's kind of three different ways that you might come by it. But in all cases, no matter which one of those three it is, you deal with it in exactly the same way. One, you become very aware of, sensitive to your feelings, attitudes, and motivations, your intent. In other words, every time you make a choice, every time you do something, say something, feel something, interact with somebody, you have to be very aware of what is your feeling, your attitudes, your motivations, what's your intent. Two, you have to accept that you are, for now, OCD, okay? In other words, we're looking for control, not, uh, you know, control of the OCD, not fighting or struggling with it. Because if you get into a fight or struggle with it, basically you now have coupled your ego to the experience. So you want to decouple your ego from the experience and, and just look at it dispassionately not aggravated with yourself for being that way, not uh, upset with somebody else for getting you upset. Uh, let the ego go and just be aware that for now, this is the way it is, and you're going to learn to deal with it. That is to control it. And the third thing is that when you first notice any feelings um, that, are, that are OCD, you have to just overcome them by force of will. So when you first notice it, not after you've already gotten angry, but when you, what that sensitivity we talked about there in, uh, in number one, you should be sensitive enough, you can feel yourself starting down that path. And before you get committed, just stop it, nip it in the bud, overcome it by force of will, say, no, I refuse, I will not go down that path. That's what I feel like doing. I feel like getting angry, I feel like being harsh, but I won't go down that path. And you just back up. And maybe you can't go down any path at that point. Maybe you just have to be quiet, you know, and, and let, it, let it go. Or maybe you can then go down a more gentler, kinder uh, path. Okay, so that's the, that's, you know, that's the thing. It's, it's your will has to, uh, has to uh, override that, that uh, inclination of yours. Okay. The more you practice, the better you'll get. And that's an important part to understand. When you first start this, it'll seem rather impossible because, well, you'll say, just the way I am. You know, it's just the way I react to these things. I can't react any differently. But you can. And you can't fix it all at once. Pick the smallest problem there. What's the, what's the thing that, that you can be most sensitive to? And it's just kind of a small application as OCD. Start with that one. Don't start with the big, tough ones that are... Uh, really uh, more difficult to do. Start with a small one and beat that one. Use your, your willpower, your sensitivity. Say, oh, I feel this coming on. This is one of those situations where I kind of lose it. I'm not going to go there, and I will not do it. That's you having the courage to not give in to the fear. Okay, Fear being at the, at the root of this uh, one way or another, whether you, uh, you know, whether you brought it on when you came here, whether it was random happening or whether it's just you expressing yourself, um, 
you have to use your your um, intent to overcome it. Okay, the more you practice, I say, the better you get. The same goes for any fear, ego, or belief that you wish to overcome. So though we're talking about a person with OCD, this is the exact same methodology you use to overcome any fear or belief, obsession, uh, you know, anger management, um, inattention to business, whatever it is. You just have to catch yourself. Be first be sensitive to it. Catch yourself before you actually get going down that path because you're sensitive to it, and then don't go there. Eventually, that will become easier and easier. Then you won't even have to catch yourself. You just won't go there anymore. Then eventually you can work your way up to the harder and tougher cases and overcome them and give it six months to a year, you can probably face that down and get rid of it. And that's true even if it's random biochemistry issue because the consciousness leads and the body follows. So if you can get your consciousness to where it just refuses to go there, your biochemistry will probably change to support that consciousness as opposed to the one that you know has OCD. So that's the same prescription for anyone that's dealing with any sort of fear of any sort that's that is kind of pushing them around, where they're they're reacting to things in ways that are just not helpful, and they want to get over it. So that's the that's kind of the prescription of what to do. But if you work at it for two weeks and it doesn't seem to work, that's because it's only been two weeks. Work at it for two years and see if it doesn't work. Then you'll probably find within six months to a year you'll find real progress. That will give you the confidence to do more, which will give you the confidence to confidence to do more, and it becomes an easier thing to beat. Then you can go on to other problems, not only the OCD, but other things that other fears you might have. That's the that's the way we do it. It's um, it takes it takes courage to to. Uh, Stand up to that and just say, no, I won't be that. I won't make that choice. I won't make that choice to raise my voice. I won't make that choice to get angry. It's my choice to make. I'm not doing it. And that's what I mean by courage to stand up and face your fear. Just say no. I actually have a follow-up question to Tom's explanation, uh, his response to that question. Um, first of all, can you hear me? Is that okay? Is it going through? Yeah, I hear you, Brian. Okay, great. So having the willpower to stand up and say no, make that decision, it seems like there may be a fine line between doing that and, um, shall I say, resisting or feeding it. So if it's a biochemical issue, um, you know, there there are many instances you can put your foot down and say no. You know, this is this is what I'm going to do instead, and you hold your ground. But I found in my own experience, as I you know I deal with certain biochemical issues myself. I found that um, there is a power in acceptance, and that is in not resisting it, but simply kind of hugging the demon, as you've said before. If you meet a negative entity, you know, it's almost like, hey, you know, what can you do to me? You just you actually just kind of let it hit you. So I found a, I found that there's actually a kind of a fine line between those two things. When do you resist? When do you put down your foot and, and exert your will? And when is that, in fact, feeding the problem? Do, can you speak to that, Tom, if you can? Sure. That was my uh, that was my step number two, and that was accept that you are for now OCD, 
or have a fear uh, that you're going to control instead of fight or struggle. Decouple your ego from the experience. That was my step two. Well, what you're talking about is, is your ego taking charge of the experience and saying, hell no, I'm not going to change, you know. You do this and you make me aggravated and that's the way it is and you're wrong and I'm right. So, you know, now because you are, you're fighting, you're struggling with it, you've kind of, you've kind of given it over to your ego to deal with. And at that case, in that case, you are not, that's not what I mean by having the courage to just say no. Um, that's the wrong, that's the wrong path. So what you were talking about is really not doing step two doing the opposite, getting your ego entangled with it. So that is an important part of it. You can, if your ego takes over, then you're just going to feed gasoline to the fire. You're going to make it a lot worse. That's what you you have to realize that, that, that ego is part of the problem. So you have to have a detached view. When I say accept it, I would agree with you there. Accept it in a detached way. You have to say, this is the way I am. Sometimes I get, you know, I get very intransigent. I demand that things be my way, you know. Uh, I, uh, I fuss or I get upset, that kind of thing. And I don't want to go there because I see that that's dysfunctional. I guess even step zero before we get to step one means you have to realize that it's dysfunctional. You know, you have to realize there's a problem. This guy seems to already be past step zero. He knows it's a problem. He knows it's dysfunctional. He knows what his behavior is as far as kind of trouble it causes with other people. So he's aware of all of that. Um, that has to be the first step. We call that step zero. If you don't get to that, then that's more what you're talking about. If you, if you haven't accepted it yet, you're not really aware that this is your problem and that it is dysfunctional, then you have a tendency just to do it and justify it. And in that case, um, you can't go to step two or three before you finish you know, step zero and one. So first you have to realize that it's a problem and that you want to, you want to get rid of it. You want to stop it. Thank you. This is a good segue to my question, actually, which is about pain. My original question, I simply wrote it as, what is pain? Because I didn't want to charge the question, but I feel this is a good segue. Um, so let's say that somebody is having a PMR experience where, you know, of course, they, they don't have conscious memory of their pre-PMR uh, experience. So they believe, um, for lack of a better word, that this is all there is and they're experiencing some sort of pain. Um, it could be a physical pain or a biochemical pain or whatever. So they're in a situation where they're experiencing pain perhaps for a long period of time. Hold on, buddy. <laughs> My son. Um, so in that instance, um, it, it can seem like the pain is... Um, so in my case, there have been moments when I can, it can seem like the pain is inescapable. So I found that it doesn't work to resist that. Instead, uh, this is the, you know, this is the situation that, that I'm, you know, I at times have experienced. And there's a great empowerment. Uh, this is step number one, as you just pointed out. There's a great empowerment to accepting that pain and recognizing that it is, um, you know, it is present. And, and if you go through the tsunami, if you go through the tornado, you, you often do find that on the other side, you're actually not destroyed by it. You're actually stronger and it, and it can pass. It loses, it loses its charge. You remove the charge from it by, mm -hmm. uh, by accepting it. Um, so that being the question, that being the case, uh, my question was about pain itself uh, because I can understand 
very much that pain could be a feedback mechanism in many cases, and it is a good feedback mechanism. Uh, but it seems like there might be cases where um, pain would be uh, almost too persistent and not beneficial for, you know, the experience of an individual within the system. Um, so my general question was, was what is pain? And I, you know, I, don't, I don't think you need to say feed, you know, feedback within a virtual system. I understand if you jump off a bridge, you're going to hurt and hurt yourself. Or if you punch somebody and they punch you back, you need to feel that, that, uh, that punch. Uh, my question is more philosophical even, well, you know, pain itself, you know, when we feel, so I'll, I'll boil it down to this, when we feel the sensation of pain, um, you know, when I've analyzed that, I've, I've gone completely with uh, a painful situation, I've just, you know, been totally with the pain, not judged it, not attached an ego uh, response to it, but simply been there with it, I've found that pain is is a sensation, like any other sensation, but what is interesting to me is that a pain sensation hurts, <laughs> right? So how so how is it that um, uh, you know certainly there's sensations that we all tend in our society to address as you know to call good, like a sexual sensation or eating good food or something like that. And then there's things that everybody says, "Oh, that hurts." You know, you break an arm, that's pain. Pain is bad. Well, I'm actually kind of reaching the point where I feel like, well, maybe it's not even that the pain is inherently bad. If you break an arm, you know that pain. Yeah, it teaches you a lesson, but I guess I'm, I'm interested in understanding your viewpoint on what is the pain itself, because as I explore a broken arm, the pain of a broken arm, you know, I, I find that it's not in, it's not inherently charged, and yet uh, it it causes, you know, suffering and, and something that might be, uh, you know, a, a negative experience. Seth, could you speak to any idea you have about, um, you know, the nature of what pain is? Sure. And... Uh... Let me go up to the highest level and be very general and philosophic for a minute, then we can break it out into more detail. But the, at the highest level, if you have, let's just separate the, the uh, fear, ego, and belief from, the, from not having fear, ego, and belief. If you have fear, ego, and belief, like most of us have, then pain can be associated with anything. You can have a phobia, and if you see a spider, you know, it terrifies you. But you could just have a phobia of wildflowers. And if you found yourself, you know, in a, in a field of wildflowers, that could terrify you. So as long as you have fear and ego and beliefs, then you can create a painful situation out of almost anything, be it a spider, a snake, or a field of wildflowers, or failure, you know, a, a, a sense of, of uh, not being good enough, you know, for, uh, you know, fear of being inadequate, you know, you could, could all create pains, uh, not, not being uh, lovable or cared for or appreciated, all that could create pain, but all that is your own interpretation, you see, that's your fear and ego interacting to create pain for you, in which case that's a good sign, it's a good symptom that should make you start to think, what's going on? What's wrong? You know, why am I having all this pain? So, like most pain, like physical pain, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a sign that something's wrong. Pain is not a natural state. It's a sign that there's some problem somewhere. And if you're afraid of wildflowers, then the problem is a psychological problem, probably, unless you're deathly allergic to pollen or something, then it may be a physical problem. But uh, if you get a broken arm, 
Why should you have pain? Because without the pain, you wouldn't take care of it. Without the pain, you wouldn't necessarily immobilize it because immobilizing it what stops it from hurting. And that's also what lets the bone regrow. You see, jerking it around or letting it flop around on the, you know, on the end of your arm is traumatizing it and making it worse. It also makes the pain worse. So the physical pain, just like emotional pain, it tells us that something's wrong and pushes us to do something about it. And if we don't do something about it, the pain continues or gets worse. If we do do something about it and, and what we're doing is effective, then the pain gets better, it goes away. So it's also a good um, feedback mechanism for getting rid of the pain. Because if you're doing something positive, then uh, the pain should, should uh, go away. All right, now on the other hand, if you don't have fear, you don't have ego, you don't have belief, you've outgrown all of that, then the pain that you feel there is comes in two kinds. One, if you make a bad decision that is de-evolutionary rather than evolutionary for your consciousness, you feel that as pain. You've made the wrong choice. You've done something you shouldn't have done, and that's painful. And if you see others who you care about deeply doing things like that that's hurting themselves, then there's a sadness evolve, you know, involved with that because you can't go in and direct their life. You can't tell them what to do and what not to do. You can't grow up for them. You just have to let them grow up on their own, and that means they may be shooting themselves in the foot periodically, and you see that pain, and it's very sad that people are like that. And then the more love and caring you have, the broader that gets. It's not just the people you're very close to, but it's the whole world. You see the whole world, you know, people in general shooting themselves in the foot, and there's sadness involved in all of that unnecessary self-created pain. So those are the two, two categories. Now we go back to the normal category of fear, ego, and belief, and most all of that pain is self-created. Not necessarily all of it. You know, something, sometimes awful things can just happen to you and you have to deal with them. And you didn't create them. You know, some accident happens or whatever, and then you just have to deal with the pain. So they're not all self-created in that sense. They, some just happen. But in any case, it's something for you to deal with, to accept, put it in the right perspective, put it in a big picture perspective and, and uh, use it to grow up as opposed to use it to wallow around in self-pity. And what you talk about where you have pain and you just go with it, well, what you're doing there that's helpful is that you're detaching your ego from it. Rather than, than getting into a self-pity, oh, woe is me, all the pain I have, or fighting it and getting angry with it, why, why me? Why should I have all this pain? You see, all of that is ego attachment to the pain, and that will just make the pain worse. If you can just let that go and detach your ego from it, then at least you're no longer feeding it. You may not be fixing it in the sense that you may not be changing things to make it go away, but at least you're no longer feeding it. And that would be a relief just in itself. Most of us that create our pains, we, we feed them. It's, you know, we create them and keep them, keep them going. Uh, so not feeding it is a very good thing. But the best thing, even better than that, is after you stop feeding it, is to get rid of it to go to the source of it. Why do I feel this pain? And almost always you will, if it's a, if it's a pain of, of being, pain of, uh, I guess a, a Freudian would say, a, a, a 
you know, an emotional uh, thing, then almost always you will find a fear behind it. There's some sort of fear that's creating the pain. Um, you know, fear of not doing it right, fear of being inadequate, some of these very nonspecific general fears that uh, are typical in, in our population. And the fear typically comes there. Now, it could be biological. You know, you could have real bad arthritis and you have pain a lot. Just moving is painful. Well, then, if the medications aren't helping, then you just have to deal with it. And maybe the way you deal with it then is to learn in your mind to turn off the pain, which means ignore it. And uh, pain clinics have found that they can teach people, not everyone, but a lot of people are teachable to turn off their pain mentally. And the way they found this was that some people, like people with uh, very chronic uh, kidney disease, they have so much pain that they have an option, and that is... You know, they have actually only two options. And one is to learn to turn it off with their mind or spend the rest of their days on drugs, which make them so drowsy or so out of it or whatever that they can't really carry on a life because they're drugged all the time. So they're either drugged or they're in terrible pain. See, that's a bad set of choices to have to pick one or the other. So they found an alternative, and some people can just learn to turn it off. Yes, the pain's still there, but they just don't focus on it. They don't let it interfere, and they kind of get on without it. It's kind of like when you go to a dentist, and you really get yourself up for pain. Oh, this is going to hurt. I know this is going to hurt. You know, I'm going to have this cavity filled. Well, all a guy has to do is touch your mouth with his, with his mirror, and it's almost excruciating, right? Because you've worked yourself up in expectation of this pain. And that tends to be the way it is with any pain. If you're one of these people with the damaged kidneys, you know, and you have pain, it's, oh no, you know, another onset of the pain, you make it a lot more worse with your mind. And if you can do the opposite of what you do when you go to a dentist, you actually can tell your mind to let it go. Okay, it's pain, but it's not going to interfere with my life. I'm going to just put it in the background and have it and not notice it so much. You can do a lot to eliminate pain that way. Now I'm talking about physical pain, you know, physical pain with a the rule set says scraping those those knuckles around bone against bone without any uh, bursa sac in between to lubricate is uh, you know going to cause pain. Then you have to either work with it with your mind, take drugs, or just deal with it the way it is. And that's just a tough thing to do. Sometimes life is very difficult if it's a physically rule set derived pain. Most of our pain is not. If you just kind of took pain in general and it's in the world. Most of it's self-created, and most of it uh, is there because we, you know, we, we generate it with our fear. Thank you. That was a very thorough answer. As usual, you give great answers. <laughs> um, I found in my own case that um, after much meditation and um, a, a restoration of myself through my big toe exploration, thank you again. I'll say thank you again while I have the opportunity. Um, I found that um, I actually had some pre-birth memory it was quite limited but i do recall um engaging here you know becoming incarnate um in a certain way and i recall having a profound fear <laughs> um of the, the i'll call it the veil whatever you want to call it of uh the the restricted knowing coming over me 
And I found, um, though I had many other fears that I had built on top of that as I grew in my life that, um, you know, were very much more specific and tangible, that they kind of actually boiled down to this very root fear of, uh, I, at least I feel like currently this could change. I, you know, I'm open to it, to exploring more about myself. But I feel that, um, you know, this kind of a, uh, a, a fear of being restricted, uh, I guess is the best way to put it is, but, but on the other hand, I actually I have a, a great sense that that's actually what I'm here, of course, to, uh, to experience and overcome. And I'm very much committed to, to doing that. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, my point in, in my response here is that I feel like we build momentum. Uh, I feel like if we, if we you know, think a certain way and expect things a certain way for 30 years, 20 years, 30 years, that life, uh, has responded to us, you know, in this great feedback mechanism, we've built so much momentum that um, it's kind of like a river, I guess, metaphorically, you know, you've, you've created a current. And when you finally realize that you're creating the current, <laughs> you know, which is very liberating, you turn around and the water is still coming at you uh, with, you know, with it's like in a pool. If you're going around in a, in a pool and then you suddenly try to turn around, you find it's quite difficult to walk against the current that you created. And you didn't have to walk very long in that direction to build that current. Um, so I, I find now that I am successfully changing the current of my river and um, my big toe is the first place I've heard in this entire reality experience that I could do that. <laughs> and I'm finding that it's true. Uh, but it, it means that there still is, um, you know, a momentum stream um, that I'm experiencing. And, and uh, just in my case, my personal case, um, that involves certain elements that uh, along with the biochemistry I've inherited from my mother and father, whom I believe I probably selected due to their natures, uh, but that I've, um, you know, I have, there's certain things I experience as, as faithful. So I don't, I don't fear those things. But um, anyway, I was just going to say then, do you feel um, with the idea about momentum uh, that we in fact can push probabilities, you know, pretty far in one direction? And, and if that's true, uh, do you find that the, this reality, this VR, is set up that it is possible for us to effectively change that momentum, you know, in, a, in an efficient manner uh, in response to our, if we have genuine growth, not if we have ego-bound growth, but if we're genuinely growing with our intent, uh, do you find that this system is, effect, is efficient at then changing the probability and changing the momentum? Yes, absolutely. You can uh, reverse that current if you... Uh if you will. And what it takes most of all, you know, the first step is to be aware of it, that there is a current. Second step is to be aware that you created the current. Third step is to be aware that you'd really like to go the other way. You don't want to continue in that, in that path. And then you need to take the long view and say, I'm going to work on this seriously. And by seriously, I mean, it's not just a sop to your ego. You know, sometimes the ego will get into it and say, well, I should work on this. Yes, I should. Okay, from now on, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But then you keep right on doing, you know, the same old things. That's kind of the ego pretending that it's going to do something about it. Um, you need to actually do, you know, want to do something about it. You're at the point where you want to change it. And once you get to that point, then it's just a matter of sticking to it, uh, finding the fear. And as I say, you go through this process of standing up to the fear and pushing the current the other way. And what you'll find is that that will quickly become easier. And initially, it'll feel impossible. 
little little old me against all the current, you know, it's just really going to be hard, and I don't know if I can do it or not. But if you just do it and don't have the fear that maybe you can't do it, but you just stand up and do it, then, like I say, six months is probably all it'll take, and you'll start noticing a big difference, which will build your confidence, which will make it better, which will build your confidence, and then you'll find that you have you can accomplish so much more than you even dream possible. So yes, your intent can turn that current around and make it flow the other direction. Absolutely. You just have to really want to and be honest with yourself. You know, at the being level, you want to, not just at the intellectual level. And then just do it. And um, if you do, you'll you'll find it will work. You will succeed. And yes, that's just what we're supposed to do here in this reality. That's why we're here to have those kinds of challenges and to basically beat them to win the to win the challenge. That's the point. And you'll find that if you do that, there's a lot of growth that you will learn besides just that fear. By the time you get done with that fear, you will have gained growth in 10 other dimensions at the same time. It's not just going to be just that thing. That's just the kind of the thing that got your attention and the thing that got you to work. But you will learn across the board as far as your growth goes as you focus just on that one thing. A whole lot of things will become more obvious. To you, it'll make a huge difference all across the board in your life. Okay, the next question is actually one of my own. Um, would you say that there is any kind of information in the world that should be considered dangerous? for the state of consciousness of another person or is information generally self-concealing the sense if a piece of information is over a person's head then that person simply will not grasp it or its implications so is there any risk of harming the consciousness development of others through providing them with new information uh, the short answer to that is yes there is you can do damage to people by giving them information they they can't use but can misuse um, you know this is one of the problems in speaking to large general audiences because you have a whole array of people there and you don't want to cause you know people to uh, have a harder time growing up when what you're trying to do is to make give them an easier time growing up but it's a very difficult Problem. For instance, uh, I sometimes say that uh, it's our job here in this uh, in this uh, larger consciousness system to evolve, and and this, the we are part of the the uh, larger consciousness system's evolutionary strategy, and I've even put that into a, a metaphor of like a refrigerant. In the refrigeration cycle, it's a fluid that just keeps going around. It gets compressed and then it gets squeezed through an orifice. When it expands, it gets cool. When it gets compressed, it gets hot. You know, and it, it just keeps going round and round and round and round. And that's its job. That's what it does. It just goes round and round and round so that this refrigerator can either heat or cool. Say it's a like a, a heat pump. You know, it can cool cools on one side of the orifice and heats on the other. Um, people get that idea. They think of the larger consciousness system as a machine. They think of themselves as a cog, an unwilling cog in this terrible uh, machine. And 
pretty sure that they have an attitude of, you know, who cares? Whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm just this, this weenie little cog trapped in a big machine, and I want out. So they have a very negative um, interpretation of that, and it makes them not want to grow up. It makes them want to give up because they feel trapped. They feel small, inconsequential. They're just part of the working fluid of a big system, you know, and they have to go round and round and round and endure all this pain and misery for, you know, to help the system grow, and they don't want to be part of that. So the whole thing's a big downer. It's a negative, and it makes it more difficult for them than to grow up because of the way that they have seen that or heard, the way they interpret that metaphor. And for them, that's dangerous information, as you call it. It's information that can hurt them. Now, it's not going to force them to de-evolve, but it's just going to inhibit their growth. In other words, that was the wrong metaphor to explain how the larger reality works you know, to the wrong person because they interpret it in a way that makes their evolution more difficult. So now they're behind where they were. Where they were was maybe just, just uh, stumbling along through life. And now they're not only stumbling along through life, they're upset about it. They're, <laughs> they're angry about it. They feel used and abused stumbling along through life. So, you see, I would say that's information that's, that's a little dangerous. So you have to be careful that what you tell people is something that they can use, that, that from where they are and where they stand and the way they're likely to interpret it, Will that be part of their solution or will it be part of their problem? And you could take a very callous view and say, well, if it's part of their problem, well, that's just, you know, their problem. They need to, you know, maybe they need to get a good whack between the eyes with the two before, you know, to, to, to get them to uh, see the, you know, the dead end that they're in. But I don't take it that way. You know, I try not to become part of anybody's problem. But because I talked to, you know, there'll be, what, this, this video we're making right now, we'll see, you know, 10,000 people. We'll see it. Some of those 10,000 people are probably going to take some of the things I say the wrong way. Well, that can't be helped, or I wouldn't be able to tell anybody anything that would help them move in the right way, you see. So now I have to cut it, you know, where do I do the most good? So we look at the whole system, and how can I optimize the entropy reduction in the system? Okay, it's going, to, it's going to not help some people, maybe even hurt a very few people, but hopefully it's going to help, help the evolution of a larger number of people, and then you do what is optimal for the whole. That's kind of where I, I go with that. But yes, there are some things you can, you can say. Now, for many people, as you say, if you talk about uh, the larger consciousness system and just in uh, uh, metaphors that don't, have them uh, uh, create negative images in their mind. You know, they don't interpret things in a, in a harsh or unfriendly way, and they're not ready for it. It generally just goes over their head, you know, in one ear and out the other. They just don't relate to it. They, they don't resonate with it. It doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't help them. It's just neutral. Um, that is true for the most case if you just give them kind of a plain vanilla description. If you give them a more detailed description of how the system works, it depends on where they are as to whether they can look at that and they say, wow, okay, I'm part of this system for growing up. 
I'm important. I'm a part of the growth thing of this great big larger consciousness system, and I'm part of its growth, and I've got an important job here to do, and I really need to, you know, to settle down and, and get working on it because when I'm when I'm successful and help the system be successful, then my life becomes joy and peace, and I love it, and everything's great. So, for some people, it's a motivator. They take that description, and it motivates them to take responsibility for who and what they are, but not everybody. Some people, takes, they take that and they interpret it in a way to make them feel sorry for themselves. So they begin to wallow in self-pity. They thought it was bad, it's even worse now. You know, now they're just this cog in a big machine that really doesn't give a damn about them and is grinding them up for its own benefit. So they wallow in self-pity where maybe they weren't doing that before. Maybe they wallow in a little more self-pity. So that's what I would say. It's a difficult thing, Oliver. You have to you have to be aware of who your audience is, and on one to one, that's a much easier thing to do. And then you need to tell them in a way that they are just ready for. That they're just ready to take the next step. You tell them too much, it turns them off. They just think you're nuts, and you know they go on their way. You tell them too little, and you fail to help them as much as you could. You tell them just right and something will resonate with them and they'll want to go further. They'll ask you for the next, for the next installment. And hitting that sweet point is a, is a difficult thing, but something that we try to do when we're talking to other people. So did that kind of bracket what you were getting at? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Tom. Greg, you're next. All right. My question is about uh, thing, things that exist in this reality that are bad, but it's not obvious that they're bad. So from the viewpoint of the LCS wanting to promote widespread growth, why would it allow or design things into the system such as sugar, some milder drugs, or possibly even loud noise that could damage consciousness or hinder consciousness growth? Many people are not aware of the dangers of these things. And there are some people, such as children, who might not even have a choice to avoid them. Okay. Um, the, the key here is the first part of the question. It says, why would the larger conscious system allow or design these things? This is not a controlled reality. This is a, this is a free will reality. Okay. The larger conscious system comes up with a rule set that creates a stable um, simulation that evolves to support life on the planet, you know, plants and animals and something like us that then serves as good avatars for individuated unit of consciousness. Now, when it comes up with a rule set that allows all this to evolve, it just takes what it gets, is whether it evolves, you know, rattlesnakes, and poisonous spiders, or you know, little little fluffy koala bears. You know, it, it does some of each, and sugar and that sort of thing is uh, well. You don't get white sugar; it doesn't just you know fall off of trees or something. That's something that people have to go out and and figure out how to manufacture. But they also know how to manufacture uh, you know alcohol out of all kinds of fruits and vegetables, and you know people will you know learn how to make atomic bombs and and guns and all that becomes available if that's what they want to do with their time. If it's about war and about power and about aggression, then, then these tools of war get, get created. 
That's us doing it. And it's not that the larger consciousness system would say, uh -uh, children, you know, that's not nice. You know, don't play with those things. Don't go there. We have free will. We can go wherever it is we, we like. We create these problems. You know, the, the problem of sugar isn't a natural one, even though sugar cane is a natural plant. The problem of sugar is a social one where we have almost everybody is a, is a uh, sugar addict and sugar sells things. You know, you put sugar in your product, in your food product, and people will like it better even if they don't taste the sweetness. They just like it better because it, they get a little hit of something that uh, makes them feel good. So we, uh, we create those problems. You know, alcohol is not a, a normal product either, though it comes from natural things. You know, it's something people have to go out and process to create. So these are mostly self-created problems. And yes, they do catch a lot of people who aren't, um, you know, you might say who aren't responsible. Right, so uh, you get born into a family of alcoholics, and well, you were just born there, you know. But yet, this this alcohol now is going to affect your life and probably affect it negatively, because that's just the way it is. That's what we've created here, and the system doesn't step in and fix it. So it's pretty and nice for everybody all the time. That's not the point. The system gives us potential, and we then get the make of it what we are, you know, how we are. We, we make of it what's, what's there. And if it's nasty sometimes, then that's because we're nasty sometimes. And if it's loving and wonderful sometimes, it's because we're loving and wonderful sometimes. And that's our feedback to be less nasty and more loving and wonderful is that we get this, this feedback from it. It's ours to become aware of. And the system has a very long-term view. It, it realizes that uh, we may have to stew in our own juice for quite a while before we figure out that loving and nice, you know, is, is better than nasty. It may take us a long time to come to that decision, um, that we can do better by cooperating and caring than we can by grabbing and hoarding. It's, uh, that's, it might seem that that's a pretty obvious choice, but it's not obvious for most of the people that are here. It's a, it's a hard choice for them. And uh, you get into a culture that's mainly about grabbing and, grabbing and hoarding, and that's what you tend to do because that's the culture you're in. That's what it does, and you do that too. You pick up those values by you know, sharing in the, kind of the, the general consciousness of your culture. So you pick up those values, and now you have to dig yourself out of that hole. But... That's what we're here to do. We're here to, to uh, understand these things and dig ourselves out of the hole. Because if we don't, if it's not us, if it's just that some beneficent uh, larger consciousness system came down and cleaned up all the dirt and made everybody nice and, and uh, cooperative with each other, we as individuated units of consciousness would have learned nothing. You see, it just it doesn't do the system any good to uh, force us to act nice. It only does good if we act nice because we think it's right. We think it's the right thing to do. That is what spurs the evolution. Otherwise, the larger conscious system could just delete everybody except the nice people and then say, all right, it's going to be more pleasant around here now. We got rid of all the, you know, got rid of all the nasty people. But that's not the point. We have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not, uh, not just uh, delete things because we don't like them. That's manipulating the result. And if it's a manipulated result and not a free will result, then the result doesn't mean much. It doesn't really symbolize a whole lot of growth. 
So the system allows these things to happen. You know, I hear that sort of, that sort of thing all the time. How could the larger consciousness system allow you know starving babies in Uganda? You know, any any system that you know, had the power to change that should change it. Well, no, that's just that's the way we've created that situation, and we have to live with it. It's not like uh, you know we make a mess and the system comes along, and cleans it up for us, and and uh, you know we're not little children. We now have to be responsible adults and take responsibility for what we do. And like the discussion of pain, sometimes we don't notice what it is we're doing until we feel the pain of it, you know, until we see the horror of it. Then we take notice of it. And, you know, so the poor starving children in Uganda, you know, create a lot of awareness in people who aren't starving because they see that and they can say, well, why is that happening? Is there just not enough food in the world to go around? And they go, well, no, that's not the problem. Well, then why is that happening? And eventually, if you take that inquiry as far as it'll go, you realize there's something wrong here. We've got some attitude and, and uh, fear problems that are, that are getting in the way. Some very negative things happening on that we that we can support that kind of an atrocity. Well, that's educational for everybody. And, uh, you know, the, the poor starving children there in Uganda, and I'm just making that up. I don't know if there are any poor starving children in Uganda right now or not, but just an example. But anyway, they learn something too. It's not that they're just the pawns in the game. They have very, you know, they have very strong lessons as well. They have to deal in a very tough world a very cruel world even, and they have to do it without feeling sorry for themselves, without, um, you know, being angry. They just accept and deal as best they can, and they can learn a lot. I mean, the, the idea here isn't to, uh, you know, feel good and be happy all the time. The idea is to grow up, and sometimes tough circumstances will buy you a lot of growth if you handle them well. So that's... No, it's not that the system... Why would the system allow it? Well, the system doesn't interfere. The system creates a, a, a potential for us, and then we do with it as we will. And that's kind of the way it is, is, is what we need in order to help us go the other way. You kind of have to see the, the results of bad behavior before you realize it's bad behavior, see where it takes you. So that's kind of the answer to that. The system doesn't control what's going on here. It just sets up the potential and then... It is whatever it is we make it. And the fact that some people are seem to be innocent victims, that's just the nature of the system. So, you know, most of the children, at least in our Western culture, become sugar addicts by the time they're two years old. You know, when they're one year old, they get a cupcake full of sugar, you know, stuffed at them. And uh, they get fed sugar water and sugar desserts and sugar drinks and sugar food. So we addict our... Our babies, we, you know, probably, probably most of our children in the Western world are sugar addicts by the time they're one and a half years old, maybe even before then. And why would we do that? Why would we addict our children to a drug? It's part of our culture. We don't see it that way. We see it as giving them something that's good, something that they'll like. So it's an awareness that just has to, just has to grow. But you have to allow it to fester before it will grow on its own, and to force it to grow from outside isn't part of the solution.
So I, I have a, a couple of follow-up questions to that. Um, uh, one is, is that I, I included in the list of bad things, loud noises, and I don't know if I've ever heard you uh, speak anywhere or have, have, have you've written anywhere that noise is necessarily something that can be damaging to the operation of one's consciousness. So I want to know what you felt about that. And the, the second thing is, um, I've heard the idea before that certain things like noise and certain drugs are, they're not only things that, that affect the functioning of one's consciousness negatively, but they actually can uh, d destroy the arrangement of someone's consciousness. So directly increasing entropy. So I want to want to know what you feel about that also. Yeah, some, some things make it very difficult to, uh, say, to meditate or to grow up. Uh, some environments are very difficult to grow up in. You know, they're, they're hard, but none of them are impossible. So you can, pick, you can pick very irritating frequencies, like the proverbial fingernails down the blackboard, you know, things that just grate on people's nerves, and you could record that, and then you could play it at high volume, you know, uh, constantly while they slept or something. And you would probably disturb their, you know, their sleep, disturb their consciousness, make them irritable, make them anxious, and you would do all sorts of things. But what you would, what you would probably do that would be the worst would be you'd connect to their ego. If they started to try to, if they started feeling sorry for themselves, I have to put up with this noise. And because of that, they really, you know, they start to, get angry at the noise and they want it to stop, but maybe they can't stop it. So then they get angry at the people who are making the noise and they feel the victim. And if they get their ego attached to it, you see, now it is so much worse. Now they are suffering 10 times as much. That's like walking into the dentist with a, you know, with a big case of fear about how much it's going to hurt. You see, then the noise is 10 times worse than it would have been because they've allowed, they're giving energy to it being a problem. If on the other hand, it's a noise they just can't uh, do anything about, and they just accept it. It's part of their environment because they live next to a big machine shop that's constantly going bang, 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 and they just like the pain. They just let it go. You know, they deal with it and make as little of it as possible. Then it'll probably have still a small effect on them, but it won't dominate them. Therefore, it won't run their life. You know, they can still grow up in spite of it. So almost any environment is a, is a growing environment that you can do if you can deal with that environment successfully and not with your fear and with your ego. So I don't think the environment is a, is a killer of, of consciousness growth, but it certainly can make it more difficult, for, particularly for people with fear and ego who will get wound up around it and start feeding that problem and turning it into something, you know, awful. So there are people who have to have a totally quiet room before they can go to sleep, or a totally dark room before they can go to sleep. They need perfect pitch blackness and perfect quiet, otherwise the tiniest little thing, if there's a mouse running across the floor or something, it disturbs them, and then they get upset about it. That's probably, you know, 1% one, 1 of the noise and 99% themselves creating that problem. Uh, if you're relaxed, in a room, you can just lie down and go to sleep anyway. It's not going to bother you because you don't attach to it. You don't connect your ego to it. Uh, you don't get angry about it. You don't feel sorry for yourself because of it. You just ignore it. And uh, you can learn to, I mean, how do people who live, you know, six people in one room, you know, the way an awful lot of poor people in this world live, you know, 
how could they ever sleep or do anything? Uh, well, they just learned to let all that go. That's just in their environment, and they can sleep while six people are having a conversation because that's, they accept that that's the way life is. If they get upset by it and it aggravates them, they'll probably drive themselves nuts because they can't avoid it and they, they get wound up around the axle because of it. So that's the, that's kind of the, you know, that's sort of the, the picture around uh, that, that kind of problem. It's, it's a lot of it is created by the person themselves. Otherwise, if you're just in a noisy environment, you have to learn to live with it or you have to change your environment. Both of those are better than just getting angry about it and becoming a victim. That's the worst thing that you can do about it. Okay, thank you. Josh, do you have your uh, your question handy? Did you want to go ahead and ask it? Yeah, I'll go ahead and read. Thanks. Sure. Uh, this is about the psi uncertainty principle. Um, when discussing the application of it, uh, you mentioned that one of the factors governing whether or not uh, an NPMR effect is allowed is whether or not it's detrimental to a person's growth. Is this an entirely automated rule set process or are there actual NPMR entities assigned to allow or disallow this? Uh, and the second part of that is, um, just to give an example, let's say somebody wants to test out their intent and you know they get a pair of dice and they want to use their intent to roll a pair of sixes ten times in a row uh, to see that w if they can affect that. Um, if they're just doing this by themselves, why would uh, the science certainty principle ever disallow this? Okay, I'll take your last question first. And uh, using your intent to roll uh, double sixes ten times in a row has really nothing to do with the science certainty principle. That only has to do with having an intent uh, strong enough to modify probability enough to have that happen. Um, if you're if you're sitting in a room by yourself, as you say, as a person is in a room by themselves and they want to they want to do this experiment, they can only do that if, if their intent can modify the probability enough that they can do that. You know that they can roll uh, ten times in a row the double sixes. So the pup really doesn't have anything to do with it. If they can't do it, then it's because they haven't modified the probability enough to make that happen with their intent. Uh, that would take a pretty strong intent because uh, double sixes ten times in a row would be uh, what one six to the tenth power. That would be a lot of that's a lot of probability to overcome. So the pup would come into consideration if they wanted to roll uh, if they rolled it in their room a bunch of times. Let's say they could do that and they got the double sixes ten times or a row of sitting by themselves in their room to where they did it sort of whenever they wanted to. And now they're proud of that. They want to go out and show the world that they can do this kind of thing. So they have lots of cameras. They go on TV. The news is there. And then they start to roll it, and suddenly they can't do it anymore. That's where the pup would kick into that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, have anything to do with them doing it in their own. Then the science certainty principle would probably say they would fail in public because it would, it would disturb the, you know, having that as a, as a fact that was hard to, uh, to uh, ignore, the pup might um, get involved there, depending on how credible. You know, if this was really the credible real news and not the, uh, you know, not the National Enquirer who was there, nobody believes that anyway. So that may not make much difference because nobody believes what they say. But if this was credible news, then the pup would be more inclined to 
to uh, prevent that. If it was not credible news, then it would maybe be less inclined to, to prevent that. So that would be that situation. Now, um, let's see. What was the first part of your question? Uh, let's see. Oh, is it an automated process or is it uh, a thought-focused process? Well, that's like I said before. The, in the larger consciousness system, it's, it's not the case that it has to be one or the other. It's not like between we're the thinkers and we make free will decisions and our computers don't. Our computers only do what we tell them. Well, the larger consciousness system is the computer. It's also a thinker. It's also intelligent. So it's not a one or the other. It can basically um, be both at the same time. So it's not a matter of is it automated or is it thoughtful. It's both together. Yes, it's probably a lot of it is automated in the sense that it's algorithmic. And it's also probably has intelligence connected to it as well, because that's, that's the way the larger consciousness system is. It's, it's not a one or the other of those. It's both of those together at the same time. OK, thank you. Tom, I had a question. Uh, it's kind of off topic, but I, I, from what I understand, you self-published uh, My Big Toe. And I was kind of curious about what your experience was with self-publishing and if you have any recommendations or advice uh, for taking the route of self-publication. Well, I was kind of, you know, I was new to this. This was my first attempt at being an author when I published the My Big Toe Trilogy. So I really didn't have any um, guidance from past experience or from anybody I knew who was an author. So I just kind of figured it out as I went. My book is a little different maybe than what other people might have. I had a book that um, was very different. It wasn't like any other book. It didn't really fit into a genre you know, of books. You know, is it science? Is it self-help? Is it you know, philosophy? Is it, you know, just exactly what is it? And as I, I started, like most people would start, thinking that I would find a publisher, because that's kind of the simplest way to solve the problem. And as I went out to, you just don't go to publishers, you go to agents first, people who will look at and take it to the publisher. Publishers won't talk to you, the author. They only talk to agents. So I spread it around to some agents, and what I got back was basically the same from all of them. Well, most of them I got nothing back, but the ones that sent something back, I got um, this book seems pretty confused. One, it's way too long. That's intimidating. People don't want an 850-page book. Two, uh, it doesn't seem to be consistent. You're, you're waffling around in all kinds of different markets. You know, is this science? Then stick it to science because the science people don't like self-help. You know, and the self-help people don't want to hear about science. And, you know, is it touchy-feely or, you know, just... What are you trying to do here, you see? And that was their problem with it. It seemed to not fit in to a, to a market. They're not interested in the content other than how it might sell. In order to sell, it has to solidly fit into some market. So, and if you fit into like three or four different markets, then it's a confused book that isn't going to sell well anywhere. So you need to make 
you know, three different books out of it. Have the New Age book, you know, the self-help book, and the science book. And that would be fine. And they might want to publish all three of those, but they don't want to publish one that's got components of all of that in it because to them, that's just a mess that isn't going to sell anywhere because it doesn't fit a, you know, a prescribed uh, market or audience that they have. So they were uh, willing to help me change it, shorten it. You know, they said, you can probably throw away two-thirds of it, you know, decide on which thirds you want to keep. And I said, well, no thanks. I appreciate you, you know, wanting to help, but that's really what, not what I had in mind. Now, I had had a very naive idea that the people would actually read it before they made a decision on whether, you know, what it was about, whether it was good or not, but that is not the case. These people evidently get handed you know, 20 or 30 books a week to judge from, and they spend maybe 15 minutes in each book, uh, come to the conclusion of how marketable it is and how much profit there will be in it, and they're done. So there wasn't any of these people who actually had any idea what MBT was about, what the significance of, you know, what it was at all. They just kind of did uh, samples, you know, they skip 20 pages and do it, read a paragraph, skip another 20 pages, read a paragraph, and by the time they were done with the end, it just didn't pull together as anything, you know, that was that was valuable. So that's kind of what I got. So I decided that the only option I had left was because I, I wasn't interested in making something that would make money. I was interested in putting out something that would be valuable to people that they could learn from, that they could relate to, and, and uh, you know, it would be news that they could use kind of thing is what I wanted. And in my mind, it took all those things. Some of it is kind of self-help, and some of it is philosophy, and some of it is physics, and some of it is all this stuff, because that's what the big picture's made of. And people are really very complex, and they really need all those components touched, or they don't touch the whole thing. So I decided I'd have to do it myself. And in doing it myself, of course, there's some disadvantages. The advantage is you get to do it however you want. It's your choice. You're the editor, you know, you're the writer, you're the editor, you're the publisher, you're everything, and you can put it out there just the way you like it. The disadvantage is, unless you're very wealthy, which I am not, you, you don't have any money. You see, you give it to a big publisher, and when the big publisher takes it, the next shipment they send to, what, uh, 3,000 bookstores around the country has your book in it. You see, the, the, they send... You know, books to bookstores. Bookstores just don't necessarily order all their books individually as it is that the, you know, the, the big publishers, here's the books that, uh, you know, we, we've got to sell now, you know, and the bookstores take those and sell them. So you don't have your book going out in front of people. What you do is you put it on a web. Thank goodness for the web. If there was no web, then uh, we, independence would be lost. We would have no way to get our wares in front of anybody. So it goes out on the web and then it's a slow process because at first nobody knows it's there. You have to wait until a couple of people just by accident stumble over your site. And then if they like it, they'll tell a couple of other people. And eventually if the if it's good and people like it and it gives value, more people will find out about it and eventually it'll grow and become something. If not, then it'll never become anything. Whereas you could write a very poor book that becomes you know, a real good seller. If you get it out in front of enough people, you know, people will buy it. Even if after they buy it, they don't particularly like it. You, know, you still will sell 
you know, 100,000 copies just because it's sitting on thousands of bookshelves. So that's the, there's an upside to going to the publisher and there's a downside. But if you have something that is easily fits into a, a category of marketing and it's not particularly big and it's not you know, particularly complicated, then you can probably go the traditional route and get a publisher to pick it up and sell it if, it, you know, if uh, they determine that it's good. Now, for them determining that it's good is a crapshoot because, like I say, they probably take 10 samples through your book, you know, take 10 paragraphs randomly out of your book, and from that they make a decision. So they're, they're looking for a very set kind of thing. It's the thing they always produce. You know, look at, look at what they produce. You know, if you go out to the bookstore and see what it is, and if yours kind of fits that pattern to where it's just what they produce, then you've probably got a pretty decent chance. But if you're outside of that pattern by very far, you know, you don't have a very uh, good chance that they will, they will talk to you. Because they have lots of people who'd like to get things published, and they only have so many hours in a day, and they just do a real quick look, and they send it up to publishers, and it, uh, then they have another quick look. And all of their looks are, can I make money on this? You know, can I somehow make money on this is what, is what they're asking themselves. They're not saying, does the world need, you know, need this information? You know, that's, they really don't care about that. That's not their point. Their point is, can I make money on this? So if you've got a book that, that they can make money on and it fits their concept of what it is that they can make money on, then you can go with a big publisher. If you go with a big publisher, you don't make a lot on each sale. You're only going to make a dollar, you know, a dollar fifty if you're a well-known author. Maybe a couple, two or three dollars on every book. Uh, if you're not well-known at all, you're just starting. You may make you may make fifty cents on every book that's sold, even though the book's selling for twenty-five dollars. You, know, you may get fifty cents of that. So you don't make a whole lot per book, but then you sell a lot more books right away because they they show up in bookstores all over the place, and you get some some marketing clout behind a big a big publisher. At least that's the that's the way it has been in the in the past. And after that, though, after the big publisher gives you the first big push, sends your book out there. If it doesn't do well, that's it. Basically, you're done. They'll put other books out there that do do well, and your book's over. They own the rights to your book. You can't then turn around and you know self-publish it or do anything else with it. You sold them the rights, and if they decide it's not an economical go. Go write another book, a different book, but you can't write that one because you've already sold the rights to that one. So then it's out of your control. So that's, a, that's another downside. You don't own the, the rights to it. They can cease publication anytime they want, and when they want is when it's no longer making money for them, when another book will be put in that bunch of books that goes out to, you know, books of millions all over the country. You say, and your book won't be among them because your book went out once and didn't do all that well, just sat there, didn't sell. So now they pull yours off, and, and basically that's a dead book. It's uh, not going anywhere, and you can't do anything with it, even though you think it's the best book ever written. You sold the rights to it, and you're just dead in the water. There's nothing you can do about it. They can market it or not market it if they, if they wish. So I'd say that uh, these days with, a, with the Internet, if you've got a little bit of capital, take some money to get it started. If you're broke, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You've got to have enough money to put up a, an Internet site 
that is not real expensive, but you got to put up an internet site and you got to get a place where people can, can buy your book on your internet site. And then you need to uh, do some work like go around to other internet sites that, that are discussing things kind of that have to do with your book and uh, try to introduce it to people that way and let people know that it exists. Maybe take out some ads on you know, Google Ads or something so that you come up with one of those little advertisements on the side. But all that costs money and you're not going to get much return. For the first two or three years that my books were available, I probably was selling no more than about two books a month. It was about 24, you know, that's less than 25 books a year. That's all it was selling because nobody knew it existed. It just wasn't on anybody's map, you see. And then it kept getting more and more and more. And then I went on, um, what was it, um, the radio program, Coast to Coast. And suddenly within two weeks, I had 900 orders. In two weeks after a Coast to Coast interview. And then that kind of, you know, that was kind of the kickstart that I needed because then at 900 people were enough to tell other people who told other people and it started to grow pretty well after that. But that was just luck or larger kinds of systems set that up to, you know, to, to work out. But in any case, that's kind of my experience. Uh, otherwise, I think it still would have grown. It just may have taken a long time. Now, this, my books have been out in... Um, 2012, it was a decade. So I'm a decade plus a couple of years. And uh, it's only been the last, you know, out of that decade plus a couple of years, it's only been the last six or seven years that things have really been going good with it. You know, enough people telling enough people that it's made a, made a difference. But I think it would have gotten there anyway. It just may have taken 20 years, you know, to, to have gotten there on its own. Eventually, it's just a slow process. So you you'll make a lot more in the in the uh, short run with a publisher. In the long run, if your book's successful, you publish it yourself. You want to you know you'll get more resources in from it, and it's more rewarding because you can change it however you want. You didn't sell the rights to it. If I want to take away a paragraph and add a paragraph, all I have to do is change it before the next printing. But it takes the capital to put up a website, and if you're going to sell print books and not just ebooks, then you got to pay a printer to print them, and you can't get that done very cheaply unless you per book, unless you do a lot of books. And if, so it's going to take a fair amount of money. So you need, I don't know, I guess if you were going to go the print route like I did, you best have at least twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars that you can spend on it. It takes it takes a fair amount of money. Because if you want a good job, you're going to have to hire uh, a couple of people to help, like a professional editor, to go over it. Because, you know, I'm a physicist. I'm not an English major. So I figured I need a professional editor to help me, you know, get it right. And then I had to hire a um, topographer, which is basically the person that sets the book up to print it. You know, gives you the camera-ready copy to send to the printer. So they do their thing with it, and I'm not one of those either, so I didn't have that skill set. So then you hire one of those to do it, and all these cost, cost money. You probably have to have that uh, editor go through your book like three or four times, you know, and cost, and cost a day a couple thousand dollars each, each pass, you know, to have an editor go through it because it was a lot of pages.
So it takes some capital to do it on your own. Whereas if a, if a, if a uh, publisher picks it up, it costs you nothing other than as you sign your rights away and they can do whatever, whatever they want with it, unless you're well-known. Now, if you're a successful, well-known author and you've already made the millions of dollars, now you can start to bargain a little with them. You know, you want a little higher cut of the take. You want to reserve the rights on the changes they make and that kind of stuff. But when you're starting out, you don't get any of that. You know? If you get 50 cents or a dollar every time they sell a book, you, know, you should be happy to sit down and be quiet. So they'll tell you, you know, let us take care of it. So does that kind of give give you a, a kind of an idea of, of of the process? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That I really appreciate. That's that's great info. And then I've kind of been reading into it a little bit, and that's the impression. It matches up with what you're saying, and I'm kind of leaning towards self publication, uh, maybe ebook first, and maybe see if it takes off and makes enough money to do print from there. So, but that definitely helps. So I appreciate it. Yeah, if you can do it, you know I. And you're and you're willing to wait for it to to build. You know you don't you don't need to gain from it right away. You don't have to pay it back. It's not like you're, you're borrowing money at 20% interest or something that you need to pay back immediately. Then self-publication is a lot more work, but you own it and you can make it anything you want. And the second one is easier than the first. You know it's excuse me. You go through all the all the motions the first time will be harder. It gets easier, you know. So now my reprints aren't a whole lot of trouble because I already have found a printer and I found, you know, a fulfillment house and I found all this kind of stuff. So it's not like I'm starting from scratch. So the first time is the hardest one, but it's a, uh, it's better to keep control. At least for me, it was better to keep control of my work than it was to send it off to somebody who really didn't understand it or appreciate it or care about it. You know, now, if I were writing mysteries, you know, or uh, you know, science fiction or something, then it'd be a different story. You know, then you just kind of send it off to the publisher, and it's not like you have to maintain, you know, control over the material or something. They can kind of do what they want with it. If you're just writing books in order to sell them to make money, then your interests and the publisher's interests are the same, and that's making money. And if your interests are the same, then, then yeah, let them do it. You know, let them do the work. It's probably a good way to go. But if you're not making books to make money, you're trying to say something important to people. And it is important that it be said the way you want it said. Then I think self-publishing is the way to go. And now we got an Internet. We can do it. 30 years ago, impossible. If you didn't go through a publisher, you just, you and your friends would be the only people that know your book would have you know, not existed. Yeah, same for same for artists that make music and do other things. You know, they used to be dead in the water too if they couldn't find a publisher to put songs on a, on an album, and they just their music never got heard. Doesn't matter how good they were, it just didn't get heard. That's not the case anymore. Now there's all these indie sites where you can listen to anybody. You can get it up on a website, which isn't hard these days. Yeah, that's that's definitely a beauty of the internet. Uh, I love yeah. it. Yeah, a great leveler. <laughs>